Okay, we're back to this somewhat difficult text today. We began looking at uh, Matthew seven fifteen through 20 last week, and uh, I've divided that, of course, into two parts. And the first part, consisting of verses 17 and 18, we examined last week under the heading of the relationship of Christ to the Old Testament. And this week, we're going to examine the second part of this text, consisting of verses 19 and 20, under the heading of the relationship of Christians to the Old Testament. Obviously, I think this text is key in uh, a key text, one of the key texts in Scripture on those two subjects. And I'm, I've hoped to show you so far why I think that, and I hope to continue showing you that today. <clears throat> I begin reading in verse 17, because this, this is a unit here, even though I've divided it up. It's, here our Lord Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> which began back in verse 3. And he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And remember we saw that law and the prophets there as a way of describing the Old Testament scriptures as we know them. And he says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, that is not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter, will by no means pass from the law. And here the law again refers to the whole Old Testament. Till... Uh, from the law until all is fulfilled. And then today's text. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And these commandments seem to be referring back to the law, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures from the preceding two verses. So whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment to pray and try to figure out what Jesus is saying and how it applies to us. Because some important things have happened since he said these words in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And that's going to have to be brought to bear in how we understand this, as we'll see. Holy Father, I I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the time that we have to come together this morning and to remember that you are a creator, that you made everything, that you made us, and that Through that same creative power, you have made us new creatures in Christ, and you're continuing your good work in us until that final day when our Lord Jesus returns and we are glorified together with you forever. We thank you and praise you as our creator. We thank you also that you've inspired Matthew to write this gospel, to remember to take notes of what Jesus said, to collect them, to remember and write down through the power of the Holy Spirit the things that you wanted him to remember and to write down for us today, to say to us, we thank you that we have the words of our precious Lord, that we have your word in all of Scripture. We ask that through the power of your Spirit, we might better understand it today. Fill us with your Spirit to that end, I pray, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Uh, The ESV Study Bible notes accurately state that in the first century, the rabbis recognized a distinction between light commandments, such as tithing garden produce, and weighty commandments, such as those concerning idolatry, murder, and so forth. Now, at first, such a distinction might seem uh, a bit odd to us, but it was not wrong to notice that some laws were more serious than others. After all, our Lord Jesus, late in his ministry, acknowledges as much in his rebuke of the Jewish teachers when he said this in Matthew 23, 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So there are lesser lighter commandments of the law, and there are weightier things in the law, greater things in the law. And those things, he says, are justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So although there are some commandments that really are weightier than others, and it is therefore a greater sin to break them, right? It is nevertheless sinful to break any of the commandments, whether great or small. This is why Jesus said, these, the lesser commandments, you ought to have done without leaving the others, the greater commandments, undone. Now, why is it that people would choose to do the lesser commandments and avoid the greater ones? Well, the greater ones are usually harder, right? Uh, It's harder to obey. You know, it's easy to tithe certain things from your garden, but how easy is it to be? a truly just and merciful and faithful person. And you see, that's a matter of the heart. There's certain things you can do quite easily and look like you're righteous, but the matters of the heart, those are harder. How you treat other people, that gets to be a little bit tougher. And so you can see why they might have been tempted to like to look like they were righteous by Look, I, I, I do even the smallest little things that God says, while well, all the time they're avoiding the weightier things. And so Jesus does make this distinction. And he says, but here's the thing. You should do the lesser things, but without avoiding the weightier things. You should do them all. And this is why he also said what he did in the opening verse of this morning's text, when he says in verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's important to note that the word translated breaks here, when Jesus says whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, I think may better be rendered as it is in the New American Standard, to mean whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments. Our Lord is not referring simply to breaking such commandments, but to annulling them or setting them aside as of no use or importance. There's two, two ways you can set aside the law here. You can focus on the easy, lesser commandments that you think are easier to obey and ignore the harder ones, the greater, more weightier ones, or you can be the kind of person that says, well, I'm so focused on the weightier commandments, I don't need to bother with the lesser ones. Jesus doesn't like either of those things. 
That's not the kind of righteousness that he's interested in. And so in the previous text in Matthew 23 that we looked at, he attacks one side of this problem, and now he's attacking the other, right? This setting aside as of no use or importance is actually what the scribes and Pharisees had been doing in their treatment of the law in some ways. Um, And it is why Jesus focuses his attention not simply on setting aside the commandments, but also on teaching others to do so. And he's going to go on to mention the scribes and Pharisees where there were people who taught the law. And so in Jesus' estimation, they actually were teaching people to ignore certain of God's commandments. Whether they intended to do so or not, they were, they were doing it. And of course, he's talking to his disciples who are going to be teachers. He doesn't want them to fall into this sort of trap. There's going to be a caveat about that, as we'll see. Because it's possible that those who trusted in Jesus and who were thus in the kingdom of heaven to also fall prey to such treatment of the Old Testament scripture and the commandments contained within it. Or else why warn about it? Remember that Jesus is speaking here directly to his disciples. Um, Remember, they had come to him in the midst of the crowd. Jesus went up on a mountain. We're told that in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So there's, we know that there's a crowd here, but the disciples come to him in the middle of that crowd, and they're immediately surrounding him, apparently. And the teaching is primarily directed at them, but within the hearing of the larger crowd, some of whom are in the kingdom or will be in the kingdom, and many of whom are not. And probably won't be, right? So there's a mixed multitude. And actually, we find out later that even amongst the disciples, there's one person who's not really in the kingdom, right? And that was Judas Iscariot. But he's treating them, right, as in the kingdom here. So when Jesus began to apply the Beatitudes, he gives us the Beatitudes, which we'll read again uh, in a few minutes. Um, And then he starts to apply particularly the final beatitude, directly to his disciples. And that's in verses 11 through 16. And so we'll go back and read those so that we can see that by the time he gets to verse 17, Jesus is concentrating his attention on the disciples, those who are in the kingdom, those who are already characterized to some extent by what he's taught in the beatitudes, those who are already in some ways being persecuted, because of their allegiance to Christ. And so it begins in verse 11, where he begins to apply the final of the Beatitudes. And he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now they know of the prophets from the Old Testament scriptures, right? Which is what we're focusing in on our text today. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. So he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to those who are in the kingdom. Unbelievers aren't the light of the world. They're not the salt of the earth. They're not being persecuted because of their allegiance to Christ. It's clearly believers that Jesus has in mind here, right? He's talking to them. 
nor do they light a lamp and put it in a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Clearly talking to his disciples, presumed believers in Christ. So although he's saying all this in the hearing of the crowds, Jesus is still speaking directly to his disciples in this passage. When we get to verses 17 through 20, it's to them he's directing these words. He's told them that they will have a great reward in heaven. We've seen that in the verses I just read because they suffer persecution for the kingdom. He said, great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Now, when he gets to verses 17 through 20, however, he indicates that some will have a greater reward, apparently, than others in the kingdom of heaven based upon faithfulness to these commandments that he's talking about. This is why he speaks of those who shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven and those who should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching that even those who are in the kingdom of heaven may be guilty of setting aside certain of God's commandments, whether intentionally or not, and he's warning them against doing so. There's going to be a temptation to fall into the sins of the scribes and Pharisees when they become teachers, right? And he doesn't want them to do that. But this leads us to a couple of important questions, I think. These are sort of questions to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying and how we can apply it to ourselves. Because we're not exactly in the same position the disciples were in when Jesus said these things to them. And he's said these things to them with a view to things that will happen, that will alter their perspective about the Old Testament. Because he's already spoken of coming to fulfill it. And that's going to change how they relate to it, the Old Testament. So we're going to have to focus on that this morning because how that's changed affects you and me. Jesus is presupposing a change here. We don't find out what all the changes are yet. In his ministry, he hints at some of them when he makes all things clean, for example. Um, And we'll see another way he hinted at a change as we move on. But we find out more fully what the changes are in the way we relate to the Old Testament as we look at the rest of the New Testament. And we'll look at some of that this morning. But our first question, in order to try to get at better what Jesus is talking about, is to ask, to what commandments does Jesus refer when he speaks of these commandments? I've already hinted to you pretty strongly at what I think he means. As I've already been assuming in my treatment of the text, the context seems to indicate, I think quite clearly, that the commandments he's talking about are those found in the law and the prophets, in the law, in the Old Testament. He's mentioned the law and the prophets. He's talked about the prophets. He's he's talked about the law. He's talking about the Old Testament here to them. And so we can't say that these commandments he's talking about aren't the Old Testament commandments. Some people like to say these commandments are new commandments Jesus is going to give in the following verses. When he goes on to talk about those six antitheses I pointed out last week, right? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you that we're going to get in in the the coming weeks and look into more closely. 
And some people say that's what he's talking about. He gives new commandments. But as we're going to see, he really doesn't. In none of those things that he says did he say anything new. Everything he says you could find in the Old Testament already. And so he's not giving new things, fresh revelation. He's correcting the misinterpretation of the revelation they already had by the scribes and Pharisees, we'll see, I think, very clearly. So there's no way to say in the context that these commandments doesn't refer to the Old Testament teachings. Some people don't want them to refer to that because we know that we're not under some of these teachings now. Well, what I'm saying to you is Jesus already indicated when he said that he's fulfilling these things, some kind of change, even if he doesn't fully address that here. For now, what he wants to do is make sure that everybody understands the ethical demands of the Old Testament apply to those who are in the kingdom. And he doesn't get into it a whole lot more than that at this point. But of course, he inspired his apostles. He taught them a lot more and inspired them to write a lot more on this subject. But we'll see, uh, he's been talking about, already been teaching ethical principles from the Old Testament, and that's what he had in view in the preceding verses. In fact, as we've seen in previous weeks, he he already taught them important principles and commandments, which were actually found in the Old Testament in the Beatitudes. And what he was doing there is he was applying teachings from the Old Testament that were largely being ignored by the scribes and Pharisees, who, as we see, he later condemned for focusing on minutia and forgetting the weightier matters of the law. You can't read the Beatitudes and not think weightier matters of the law, right, of the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 3, backing up to those Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, We saw that that was a concept in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying what people ought to have known, that whenever the kingdom comes, it ought to look like this, right? Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All weighty matters of the law, right? All the most important things is what he's talking about. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I read those verses twice because those are the ones we like to skip over. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't hurt to have them a couple of times in our ears. So Jesus has already given some examples of what he's advocating here when he speaks of these commandments. The kinds of teachings he has in mind that ought not be ignored in their teaching of others. Now, as we saw last week, and I've already alluded to again this morning, he'll go on to give more examples in the following context in which he'll teach Old Testament moral principles to his followers. And we'll begin to deal with those examples uh, next week and in the following weeks. But for now, we'll simply observe that Jesus clearly sees complete obedience to the ethical demands of the Old Testament as characteristic of those who are in the kingdom. And those who are most faithful to these things are great in the kingdom. 
those who tend to ignore some of them are least in the kingdom. He doesn't say they're not in the kingdom, right? But this leads us to another important question. That's our second question. Given that Jesus began to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures with his first advent, his first coming, what effect does that have on these commandments for Christians? Because remember, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. He hasn't fulfilled what much of the Old Testament pointed to. In the Old Testament law, for example, yet. But once he does that in fulfilling the Old Testament, our relationship to some of those things and the relationship of his disciples to some of those things is going to change. They're, not going to, they're no longer, for example, going to go to the temple and offer sacrifices anymore. Things are going to change. Well, they have changed. And so how does this apply to us? How do we relate to those Old Testament passages now? Because there's still scripture for us, too. And we're not to ignore them either. But how, do we, how are we to be faithful to them? How do we apply Jesus' teaching to ourselves as new covenant believers who await his second coming? How do Christians relate to the Old Testament commandments that have already found their fulfillment in Christ? I want to consider a few examples in order to try to answer this crucial and oft-debated question. And we're going to run into a distinction that, particularly in Reformed circles, but in a lot of Christian circles, is made when we look back at the Old Testament, the Old Testament clearly, especially as you see things fulfilled in the New Testament, seems to have certain aspects to it. There are certain laws that are ceremonial laws that focus on Old Testament worship and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and so forth. And then there are certain laws that focus on how to judge cases in Israel as a nation. So we call these ceremonial laws and civil laws, but underlying all of that are the moral principles behind everything, which we call the moral law, right? And so those are the distinctions I'm going to have in mind as we move forward. So first, the Old Testament ceremonial laws requiring sacrifices, which pointed to Christ and found their fulfillment in him, have already been set aside as no longer binding on Christians, precisely because they have been fulfilled. Now, something being set aside because it's been fulfilled is not the same thing as setting something aside and ignoring it. To fulfill the purpose of something isn't to ignore it, right? So in setting these things aside, God hasn't ignored these things. He's shown their true purpose in Christ. And this doesn't mean, then, that such laws have no meaning for or application to Christians. Because we can learn much about the holiness of God, Jesus' atoning work, and the necessity of God's grace and forgiveness through the study of these laws. For example, after having reminded us that God has made the Old Covenant obsolete in Hebrews 8.13, the author of Hebrews goes on to say such things as this in Hebrews 9.11-14. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. The 
Old Testament high priest in some way foreshadowed Christ as our high priest, is, is what the context teaches here. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with greater and, more, and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You don't need to keep making sacrifice when, sacrifices when the perfect sacrifice has come. You don't need another high priest when the perfect high priest has come. These things pointed to Christ. He's their fulfillment. To, to go back now and say, well, I have to obey the law, so I have to sacrifice animals, will be to completely ignore the purpose of the law at, for which God gave it, right? And its fulfillment in Christ. It would be to dishonor him, to ignore what he tells us his purpose in giving that law was all about. Christ and what he would do and what he has done for us. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to Hebrew believers who are waffling in their faith and thinking maybe I made a mistake because I'm getting persecuted. Maybe I should go back to Judaism. And the great irony of the book of Hebrews is there's no Judaism to go back to. It's all found its fulfillment in Christ now. He goes on to say, for the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So although our Lord Jesus has fulfilled the purpose of the old covenant with all the ceremonial laws, we can still learn from these laws about his saving work on our behalf. We interpret all of that in light of what Christ has done. And in the process, we have a deeper appreciation of what he's done. So it still serves a purpose to us in teaching us things about God's holiness and about what our Savior has done for us. So that's, it gets into the ceremonial laws. Another one of these would be circumcision, which was a big debate in the early church, as you recall. And they made it very clear in Acts 15 at the first Church council, that God has set aside circumcision as a requirement. That went along with, that was an overlapping. It was part of the civil and the ceremonial, but it's been done away with. And that became very clear, for example. That'd be another ceremonial law that became obsolete when that to which it pointed came. And that was the circumcision of the heart. Second, the Old Testament civil laws, which were given to the nation of Israel, have been set aside in large part as no longer binding on Christians as well. One example of such a law would be that concerning adultery, which requires the death penalty. Now, we'll see adultery hasn't been set aside. The death penalty for it has been. Right? Look what it says in, in Leviticus 20.10. The, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Now, we know that adultery is still a sin and a part of what theologians often refer to as the moral law. The morality of God hasn't changed. Murder is still a sin, right? Disobeying your parents is still a sin. All these things are still sins. Even if the way they're treated 
under the new covenant, church is different. Our first hint that a change came or was coming actually can be seen from Jesus himself when he responded to the case of a woman caught in adultery. Um, I'm sure all of you remember that event, <clears throat> which is recorded in the Gospel of John. I'll just briefly read it to you in John 8, 3 through 11, to see what Jesus does something very interesting here, which looks like he might not be obeying the law, unless, unless, as the one who fulfills the law, he's already beginning to do that. And some people say, well, actually, this one was falsely accused. She must have been, right? Some people take it that way. I don't. But beginning in John 8, 3, we read, Then the scribes and Pharisees, you know, there are, there are antagonists frequently in these texts, right? Um, they brought a woman uh, to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, it's interesting that they don't, the way that John tells it is as though she really was caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, many scholars have wondered, where's the man? Because we just read Leviticus, and it said the man and the woman both had to be put to death. Where's the man? Maybe he was a scribe or a Pharisee. I don't know. Uh, but but uh, they said, Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Interestingly enough, they ignored part of that law, which said the man and woman should be stoned, and they only brought the woman. So they're not really concerned with keeping the law, is what I'm pointing out here. They're trying to trip up Jesus. And they were told this in verse 6. They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Apparently they caught on that Jesus was beginning to say some things that didn't square with their take on the law. And they were trying to find something to nail him for. Of course, he turned it on him like he always does. Because, you know, to try and match which with the most brilliant man who ever lived is a fool's errand, right? <clears throat> we're told that Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear what they said. Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote? <laughs> Some people surmise that maybe he started to write the sins of the guys who were accusing her or something like that. I, I'm not going to get into speculation. Whatever it was, um, maybe we'll find out one day. So when they continued asking him, because he seemed to be ignoring them, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. They're focused on her sin. Jesus focuses on their sin. One of their sins is that they ignored half the commandment here. They didn't bring the man. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Don't you wish you had a snapshot of that? Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? 
because you can't put someone to death without accusers under the law. And they're gone now. So those who say Jesus might be disobeying, he's not. You, you have to establish some, something with the, from the mouth of two or three witnesses before you stone somebody, right? There are no witnesses left. And so he says, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Now, I would put it to you that Jesus is already beginning to demonstrate here for us that there's a change coming in focus. And we see that change when clearly stated, I think, by Jesus when he talks about church discipline in the church. Where else would it be if it's church discipline? That was a redundant statement. But uh, when Jesus established the form of, of, of discipline for his church, which is, by the way, not a national entity as Israel had been, he did not give the death penalty as the ultimate punishment, but rather instituted the practice of excommunication, and then only for lack of repentance. This is clearly a change being made by Jesus and how, as Christians, we relate to the Old Testament law. Adultery is still a sin. Jesus didn't advocate a death penalty. If we were still under the law in that sense, there would be a lot of deaths in the church, right? But Jesus said in Matthew 8, 15 through 17, what you should do. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, like if your wife committed adultery against you, right? Go and tell him his fault, or your husband. It's a him here. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. They're actually citing the Old Testament law, a principle from the Old Testament law that's still binding on the church. You've got to have two or three witnesses. That's still the right way to do things. That's still the moral way to do things. You can't accuse somebody without witnesses. Right, publicly. Because it's just ungodly to do that. So that's part of the moral law that continues, right? And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be, be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, through that person's persistent re- lack of repentance, that person is acting like an unbeliever, and Jesus says, treat them like one then. The only sin for which anyone is excommunicated under church discipline is is lack of repentance, unrepentance. Whatever the sin is, if you repent, you're restored. And that's the point of this, by the way, restoration. Not seeing who we can get rid of, but who we can restore. So this gives you some idea already that kinds of changes that are coming The death penalty part's gone. The moral principles of having witnesses and adultery being a sin, those still persist for us as Christians. But even though many of these specific ceremonial and civil laws are no longer directly binding for the New Testament church, as I've already said, this doesn't mean that the ethical and spiritual principles they embody are no longer binding. Now, in keeping with the example we've been using, the sin of adultery... Here's what Paul said about adulterers in his first epistle to the Corinthians, just in case you need proof 
that adultery is still a sin. In our day and age, a lot of people need that proof, I think. Hopefully none of us do. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, or covetous, rather, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He's just giving a representative list. If you, as Christians, think you can go on living like this, you've missed the point of everything Christ came to do. You're not part of the kingdom. But this isn't all, because even other laws, laws that appear to have been written specifically for the governing of Israel, are also applied to Christians by means of ascertaining and applying the underlying principles behind them. And so in order to see what I mean, I want us to look at a couple of passages in which the Apostle Paul applies the moral principle behind a certain Old Testament law to the church. And and he shows us how we then can look for Old Testament, in the Old Testament, behind the laws, for the moral principles behind them, and apply them to our lives. In both examples, we're going to see that Paul was actually talking about the payment of ministers of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, Paul says this, Whoever goes to war at his own expense... Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? Now, in the context, he's defending the fact that ministers can be paid. Although he, when he was at Corinth, chose not to be. He had the right to be. And so he's defending that. And he says, he says, doesn't the law say this? And then... We're going to be astounded at the verse he quotes because it seems to have nothing to do with ministers at all. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Now, some people may think I'm a lot like an ox, and that that, therefore this should apply, but it doesn't seem to me that when you first read that, it has anything to do with paying ministers of the gospel, right? That's from Deuteronomy 25.4 again. Now, then Paul says, is it oxen God is concerned about? Well, we know to some extent, sure, it is. But, but Paul means ultimately. We could read it like this. Is it oxen that God is ultimately concerned about here? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Oxes can't read, right? Um, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Pretty interesting. What he's saying is, there's a principle here, that if God cares that even an ox, right, that's treading out the grain should be able to partake of his efforts, surely he thinks that about people. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he cares about oxen like this, surely he cares a lot more about us. And surely this principle applies to us. See, now, many people didn't have oxen that he's writing to, probably, right? We certainly don't. But there's a moral principle in that law, whether we're a farmer with oxen or not, that we can apply. And Paul applied it. And he taught us in doing so 
This is how we can go back into some of these Old Testament commandments that don't seem to have any pertinence to us and see that they really do. When we ascertain what's the moral principle behind it and how can I live by that? And in the process, not avoid any of the least of these commandments. Live out the purpose of them as best as I can, the moral purpose behind them. He, he, he cites the same thing. He cites two scriptures here, though. In, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be con- counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. We'll find out by the double honor, all elders are to be honored. What's the double honor? Well, he obviously mean, means pay. This is where the word honorarium comes from, right? Um, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Again, Deuteronomy 25, 4. And then he cites Luke 10, 7, the words of Jesus. The labor, and he says, the labor is worthy of his wages. So here he cites two scriptures. And he sees Jesus' statement that the labor is worthy of his wages as an application of Deuteronomy 25, 4, perhaps. And so from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus we have also how we can relate to the Old Testament as Christians now who have seen a lot of this fulfilled in Christ. So I hope we can see that there's much to be learned from every part of the Old Testament law, even if some ways we're not under that law anymore. It doesn't mean it doesn't have any abiding significance for us. And learning more about our Savior and what he's done for us, and learning more about how to be godly people, to be more like Christ, As we've seen, uh, the scripture also clearly implies some distinctions between different aspects of the law. It treats, the New Testament treats parts of the law different than others. And that's why I have this morning. I didn't make this up. Theologians didn't make up this distinction. They're recognizing a distinction that seems to be there pretty clearly. And so that's why many faithful biblical scholars, particularly among Reformed churches, whether Presbyterian or the truly Reformed Baptists, Um, have identified at least three aspects of the law, the ceremonial, civil, and moral law. And I think we've seen that it's precisely these demands of righteousness that Jesus will go on to apply to his followers and defend against the distortions of the scribes and Pharisees. But he goes on to say, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. And I think here he has the future. Don't kid yourselves. You're not in the kingdom now, and you won't enter the kingdom in the future. If you are like the scribes and the Pharisees in the way you treat these commandments. You pick and choose what you want to obey, depending on the circumstances. And your primary goal is to look righteous to other people in doing so. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were like. And Jesus said, won't cut it. We're looking for real righteousness in the kingdom. As we saw last week and in the coming weeks, Jesus is introducing this discussion that's coming where he challenges, you have heard it said, but I say to you, challenges the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees in a pretty sustained uh, message. And we'll look more at that to come. 
I just want to remind you all that as we close here, ultimately, we receive righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees from God. They didn't have it within themselves, and neither do we. If those of us who are in the kingdom manage to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, it's not because we're better than them. It's because God, by his grace, has granted his righteousness to us through the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's reckoned his righteousness as our own and declared us righteous in his sight based on the gracious gift of the righteousness of Christ. And then the process, that's called justification. And then the process of sanctification is all about us being made into what he's declared us in Christ to be. And that finishes not this side of heaven. That finishes when the resurrection comes and we're glorified. We don't achieve perfection in this life. We're ever striving for it, for that righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with one huge difference. God's working in us in a way he wasn't working in them because they rejected Christ. And by the grace of God, we've received him. I'll finish with, a, I think, a helpful teaching from Kent Hughes that drives these points home. It's worthy of some good, significant quotation here. He writes, Christ's intransigence, his hard, unbending words, were actually full of grace. When he said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He was speaking as kindly as he ever spoke. For he was explaining in the most dramatic terms the impossibility of salvation apart from his grace. This takes us right back to ground zero of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize they cannot make it on their own, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand and acknowledge that there is no way but that of grace? If so, then also see that Jesus' words in verse 17 are our hope. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is our hope because Christ did what we could never do. He fulfilled the law. Remember, one of the ways he fulfilled it was by perfectly living it out all the ethical demands of the law. So he's right when he writes this. He goes on to say, his righteousness, his righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And because he fulfilled the law, he can give us a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. He fulfilled the law by living a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the demands against us by dying for us. I couldn't have said it better myself, which is why I quoted him. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you for your word. It's my hope that I've been able to help everyone here to understand better how as Christians we should honor your intent in giving all of scripture. 
we should seek to learn from it in all the ways that you want us to learn from it. And that every single word of Scripture still has application to us as Christians. Understood rightly in Christ. We read the Old Testament as those who are on this side of the coming of Christ rather than the other side. And it's made a big difference to us. But one thing it hasn't done is made the Old Testament of no value to us. It's something we don't need to be concerned about. Oh, Lord, if there's anyone here in this room who has thought that way, deliver them from such sinful thinking, I pray. And help us all to love all of your word and to seek in it what you have for us on every single page, in every single syllable, in every word, and thus honor you as our great God and Savior. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet come to know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today you will do for him or her what you've done for those of us who are already in the kingdom. Grant them faith and repentance to trust in Christ as the one who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life. We'll give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers because we know you alone deserve it. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.